The eye of a hurricane is a strange phenomenon. Hurricane winds spin in a circle up to 180 miles per hour. My wife is from South Florida and she's lived through a number of hurricanes. She recalls how her dad would pick the coconuts out of the trees and board up the windows to prepare. The family would then huddle together as the storm let loose its fury. But at the center of the hurricane, at the eye of the hurricane, a strange phenomenon occurred. The winds died down and an eerie calm was felt. Kathy's father would always open up the doors and let the family out to experience the strange serenity. They had just braved a fierce storm and soon they would be back in its teeth. But the eye of the storm provided a brief reprieve. A chance to lick their wounds and catch their breath. The eye was nature's intermission. And in a sense, 1 Timothy was written in the eye of a hurricane. See, Paul had just experienced a frightening storm. And unbeknownst to him, he was headed back into its rage. But for the moment, there was a calm. See, Paul had gone to Rome to be tried before Caesar Nero. He had stood in the lion's mouth and had escaped. The emperor set him free, but his freedom was short-lived. For just two years later, in 65 AD, Paul was arrested again, this time for the last time. A year later, Paul was beheaded, martyred for his faith in his Lord Jesus. At the moment, a fierce storm was behind him. A fiercer storm was ahead of him. And Paul was in the backyard enjoying the calm. In the eye of the hurricane, he writes two letters, 1 Timothy and Titus. His second letter to Timothy is penned in that final fatal storm. Up to this point in your Bible, Paul's letters are to the churches. But the next four are written to individuals. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon were church leaders or pastors. That's why we call these letters the pastoral epistles. These four letters are lessons for leaders. Well, chapter 1, verse 1 begins. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. The term here, apostle, applies to an ambassador. We talk, we'll talk about the apostolic office later, but the word here means to send as a representative. And this colored all that Paul was and did and said. Paul was always conscious, as we should be, that he represented bigger realities than just himself. That he stood for God, for God's Son, for the gospel, for the church, for God's grace. Paul writes to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Reminds me of Billy, the pastor's six-year-old son. At church, Billy would always introduce himself as Billy Allen, Pastor Allen's son. One night, his mom suggested that he drop the Pastor Allen's son, be his own man. Why don't don't you introduce yourself, son, as just Billy Allen? Well, the next Sunday, a visitor came to church and asked Billy his name. Well, following his mom's advice, he replied, he said, I'm Billy Allen. The man replied, Billy Allen? Oh, you must be Pastor Allen's son. Billy answered, well, Dad says so, but my mom isn't quite so sure. (laughs) 
Well, unlike Pastor Allen's wife, Paul had no qualms about advertising the father-son relationship that he had with this young man, Timothy. According to Acts chapter 16, Timothy's natural father was not a believer in Jesus. And though his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois were Christians and godly examples, understand a mom's influence only goes so far. Here's a startling statistic for you. When a father is an active believer, 75% of the time his kids become active believers. But when mom is the only active believer in the family, the odds decrease to 15%. The father factor is crucial in a son or daughter's spiritual formation. And this is why Eunice jumped for joy when the Apostle Paul took her son under his wing. Paul was a spiritual dad to Timothy. And Timothy became Paul's friend and troubleshooter. He put out fires in Corinth, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Ephesus. He became a capable pastor. Well, Paul greets Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when Paul writes to the churches, he greets them with grace and peace. But when he writes to pastors, he adds mercy. And I can tell you firsthand, a pastor's job is harder. His responsibilities are greater. His judgment will be stricter. That means he really needs God's mercy. Well, in Acts chapter 19, Paul started the church in Ephesus. It was a strong, healthy church. And when Paul moved to his next assignment, he turned the leadership over to Timothy. Here he writes to his protege, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Now, needless to say, Timothy had some big shoes to fill. Can you imagine pastoring in the wake of the Apostle Paul? That'd be like taking over for Billy Graham or coaching after Bear Bryant. And you'll notice Tim was a bit timid. That's why Paul urges him to stick with it, to stay at it. Timothy needed a holy nudge. Remain in Ephesus. Throughout this letter, Paul is going to follow a pattern. He is going to urge Timothy... And then he's going to praise God. In essence, he challenges Timothy to press on by getting him to look up. And the first thing Paul urges him to do here is to remain. As the pastor of the same church for 42 years, to my surprise, longevity has brought with it great rewards. In fact, I think in almost every venue, longevity is an underrated virtue. Whether it's a job or a marriage, or a community, or a church, you'll find that there are some blessings that only come with longevity. They accrue when you remain. And then in verse 3, Paul urges Timothy to charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. And what an important word for pastors today. For there are so many issues that tempt us to diverge from the Scriptures. Apparently, falsehoods and speculations were seeping into the church that Timothy pastored. 
Falsehoods deny the truth. Speculations distract from the truth. They take you down irrelevant rabbit holes. Stuff like Bible codes and 666 interpretations and conspiracy theories or fables and endless genealogies. They divide rather than edify. Paul is telling Timothy to never let tabloid overshadow truth. The pastor's job is to keep us focused. And our focus should be where? On the Word, on God's Word, the Bible. Verse 5 tells us it's end result. Now the purposes of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. See, Christian truth produces love for God and love for our fellow man. Not arrogance, not fear, not elitism, not combativeness, not friction. But true Christian faith produces love. That's why if a topic doesn't increase my love for God and my love for you, it doesn't really deserve my attention. The subject might be clever and curious, but it doesn't encourage love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from a sincere faith, then it doesn't merit my concentration. He says in verse 6, From which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. See, there were legalists in Ephesus. Rather than preach God's grace, they were forcing other believers to jump through legalistic hoops. They had all kinds of rules and rituals and requirements that went far beyond the gospel's call for simple faith. Ever heard of hula hoops? Sure. Well, beware of holy hoops. You got to worship on a given day. Or you got to speak in tongues. Or you got to be baptized by our formula. Or you got to read from a specific Bible version. Or you need to vote a particular political party. Or educate your kids the way we educate our kids. Or eat or drink our way. Do this, avoid that, or you're a second-class Christian. The legalist says, follow our stipulations or you'll never know God's best. That's just not true. Faith is not about towing a line. It's about following Jesus. Recall verse 5. The purpose of the commandment is love. This was true of the Old Testament law, its stories, its codes of conduct, its rituals. They were all about love. See, the law taught us that God loves us enough to provide a sacrifice. Even the genealogies mentioned in the law revealed that God cares enough about His people to call each one by name. The law gave to Moses. It was all about how to love God and how to love one another. The law was about love. The purpose of the commandment is love, he says. And then he says in verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Did you know that it's possible to use the Bible in unbiblical ways? To use the law unlawfully? Once a man fell on hard times, he turned to his Bible, he closed his eyes, he plopped his finger down, On the page, it read olive oil. He took it as a sign. 
he invested in Texas oil wells. And he earned millions of dollars. But soon the wells all dried up. So once more, he turned to the Bible. He put his finger down on the page and it read, Paul was placed in the stocks. It was a sign. He invested in the stock market. And once again, became a millionaire. But not soon after, the market took a downturn. And it cost him a fortune. So once again, he opened his Bible. This time, his finger landed on chapter 11. (laughs) Hopefully, that last sign caused him to realize Bible roulette is not a reliable way to find God's will. Hey, twist enough, cut and paste enough, and a person can make the Bible say whatever they want it to say. We need to interpret the Bible in its context. We need to use the law lawfully. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, Paul tells Timothy to study the Bible so that he can rightly divide the word of truth. And he comments on the correct use, how to rightly divide the word of truth, the correct use of the law in verse 9. He says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane. See, the person with rebellion in his heart is the one who needs boundaries for his hands. You need do's and don'ts if you lack the proper wants. But a Christian has been made a new creation and given new desires. Thus, rather than be bound by the law, a believer in Jesus needs to be released to love. Remember, the law is like an x-ray. It shows the break in the bone But it can't fix the break. X-rays don't fix anything. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We gain God's favor and forgiveness by faith and by faith alone. Why live with the law looking over your shoulder when the Holy Spirit now fills your heart? People live far more godly lives when they're bathed in God's grace than when they're flogged by the law. Well, Paul says the law is not for the righteous, but for who? For murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. These are people full of hate, not love. They don't have love. That's why they need the law. The law is for fornicators, for sodomites. It's not love to use a person for sexual gratification with no regard for what's morally and spiritually best for them. The long arm of the law is for kidnappers. Love doesn't steal another person's freedom and force them to comply against their will. And it's for liars and perjurers. Love doesn't deceive or distort the truth. See, laws are necessary where people lack love. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And this is why when the gospel arrives, the law becomes irrelevant. For sound doctrine produces great love. And notice Paul here calls it the glorious gospel. I like that. I'm sure when he thought of the gospel, it brought a tear to his eye. For he shares a bit about how the gospel affected him, his testimony with Timothy. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me Because he counted me faithful, 
putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, literally a bully. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul's words there. I was formerly. What if you wrote someone a letter and you used those same words? What would follow? I was formerly a drug, druggie. I was formerly an adulterer, a hothead, an idolater, a hypocrite. There's a line in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Christian is told, You must know that forgetful green is the most dangerous place in these parts. Forgetful green. It's that grassy bluff where you relax and you forget what you were and what you would be apart from Jesus. It's the place where you get bluffed. Don't forget what you were. Don't forget what He saved you from. We all were formerly, but now we've been gloriously saved by the glorious gospel. And Paul doesn't forget. He says in verse 15, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. In his former life, Paul hated Christ, and he killed Christians. Now he says, However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ, might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. See, Paul realizes that with him, God set a precedent. He found the meanest, vilest sinner on the block, and he cut him down to size. On the Damascus off-ramp, Jesus knocked Paul off his high horse with a bright light. He cut him down to size. He turned the chief of sinners to prove that he can turn anybody. After Paul, there's now hope for us all. And Paul erupts in praise to God, verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. When I think of what God has done in my life, I too erupt in praise to the King. Why remain at your post? Why persist in being the witness God has called you to be? Why represent God well? Because the King is worthy. He is timeless. He is incorruptible. He is intangible. He is wise and all-wonderful. Again, notice the pattern here in Paul's letter. There's a charge, then there's a praise. God's honor in heaven is the reason that Timothy should conduct his ministry honorably. Now, in verse 18, he gives him a new challenge. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now notice here, Paul couches Timothy's ministry in military terminology. The word translated charge, it speaks of a combat assignment, literally orders from headquarters. Friends, never forget, the Christian life is not a playground, 
It's a battleground. We learn from these letters that Timothy was a bit timid. He loved Jesus. But when met with resistance, he tended to shrink back rather than rise up. To cower rather than power. Here Paul supplies a needed reminder. Apparently when God called Timothy to ministry, he gave him a few personal predictive promises. And promises from God are powerful. They cast vision and they establish direction. God's promises becomes anchors in the storm and reflectors in the dark and signs at the fork in the road. Promises fan the fire when we run out of steam. And here's my question to you this morning. What personal promises has God made to you? I know He's made to you some. Do as Paul encourages Timothy. Don't shrink back from God's promises. Don't forget them, but recall them and embrace them. Rise up in faith and use those promises as motivations to keep fighting. What Timothy needs to hold fast, he says in verse 19, having faith in a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I delivered to Satan, that they, may not learn, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, wars have casualties. And that includes the spiritual battle. And here Paul mentions two contemporaries who suffered shipwreck. Apparently, Hymenaeus and Alexander were two brothers who had denied the faith. And as a result, they had gotten the right foot of Christian disfellowship. They had gotten booted out of the body. You know, the fastest way to learn to appreciate what you've been given is to be forced to live without it. Thankfully, there have only been a few times in the 42 years that I've been a pastor when we've had to remove someone from our church. And when it had to happen, it was done biblically. First Timothy is going to talk a lot about membership in the body of Christ. It's safeguards, it's privileges, it's obligations. And there are times, like with Hymenaeus and Alexander, when those safeguards and privileges have to be removed to remind the person of the obligations. Tough love has a place in church life. But we come to chapter 2. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Hey, it's our job to pray. But for whom should we pray? Notice Paul says, all men. And to me, this has incredible implications. It means that no human on this planet is outside the reach of prayer. God wouldn't tell us to pray for all men if there were some men for whom our prayers had no effect. Don't ever write anyone off. No one is beyond the reach of our prayers. And notice the four types of prayer mentioned here. First, supplication. Supplication is a felt need. It's an open wound that needs attention. It's the spontaneous heart cry brought to the healer himself. The next word translated prayers speaks of a reverence for God. This is more of a deliberate posturing before God. It's coming With a humble heart. Third, intercession. 
is a request on behalf of another person. And fourth, giving of thanks. I mean, should we ever approach God apart from a grateful heart? I would hope not. And thus our prayer life should consist of all the above. Cries of the heart. Personal and frequent humblings of our heart before Him. Help for others. And of course, a constant stream of gratitude should characterize our prayers. He says, pray for all men and especially kings and all who are in authority. Now realize, as Paul pins these words, the most evil tyrant the world has ever seen is sitting on the throne in Rome. Emperor Nero was the kissing cousin of Adolf Hitler. I mean, he made Stalin and Mao look like babysitters. Nero was a certifiable nut, but not a nut that couldn't be cracked if the church chose to pray. No matter what you think of President Biden or President Trump before him, biblically speaking, we shouldn't talk about him until we've prayed for him. And how should we pray for our authorities? Verse 2 outlines the church's political agenda. Here's what to expect from our government. And quite frankly, it's not much. We should pray that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That's what we should pray regarding the government. Realize a government like ours that allows the right to vote, that enables laws or enacts laws that protect our freedom, that even affords the church tax breaks. I mean, this would have been beyond Paul's wildest imagination. No, his goals for government were far more modest. He says, just be thankful when the government stays off your back and out of your business. If you can lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, be thankful. This is how we should pray, that we can live in worship without government interference. Remember, the goal of the church in society isn't to Christianize institutions, but to evangelize individuals. Let's pray for government to stay out of our lives so that we can share our faith freely. And then we're told in verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice, all men to be saved. You know, some people think God's salvation targets a select few. That idea is foreign to the New Testament. It's the Marines who want a few good men, not God. God desires all men to be saved. And He has appointed a middleman, or a broker in essence, to broker our salvation. He says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You remember in the midst of His great suffering, Job felt the huge chasm that separated him from God. In Job chapter 9, verse 33, he cried out, Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. In other words, Job sought help to reach God. 
And this is the universal realization. Everyone knows deep inside that they can't reach a holy God on their own. This is why even non-religious people carry rabbit's foot in their pocket. Or they consult with mediums. Or they wear crystals. Or they pray the rosary. Or they hail Mary. What? They're reiterating the cry of Job. They need a mediator. Some kind of go-between. Someone to bridge the gap between God's love and their lostness. If you want God's forgiveness and God's healing, if you really want to know God, you need to find someone close to God who can solicit His help on your behalf. And neither the Buddha, nor Muhammad, nor Moses, nor Mary, nor the saints, nor Oprah can help you with this task. Not so. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man. And only one. He is the man, Christ Jesus. And here's why Christ Jesus can broker salvation. Because He gave Himself a ransom for all. God the Son came as a man to die in the place for all men. Jesus died not as a criminal, not as a victim, not as a political pawn, but as a ransom. His sinless blood was the price required for our freedom. The man Christ Jesus is the ransom that God paid for all the sins of all mankind. You know, one of the five cardinal points of the theological system known as Calvinism is limited atonement. That Jesus died for a select few. But again, Paul denies this theory. For he tells us Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. Sadly, in the end, not everyone will be saved. But if they're not, they won't be able to blame God for it. For verse 4 tells us God desires all men to be saved. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for all men in all times. And now Paul points to Jesus. Paul had been a Pharisee in love with the rules of Judaism. But he gave up religion when he realized Jesus gave himself a ransom to be testified in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. It's amazing that Paul was now preaching the faith that he had once persecuted. And he adds to his resume... A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. As a Jewish rabbi, Paul had hated the Gentiles. But Jesus had won his heart with love. And now, Jesus had directed Paul's focus to the people he once hated. Paul says, today I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, Paul here has been talking about all men. But all men come in two varieties, male and female. And now in the last half of chapter 2, Paul is going to instruct both men and women regarding the specific roles that they should play in church life. For our gender matters to God. He begins in verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. 
Now, I'm sure Paul wants women to pray too. But here he makes special mention of the men. Men are called to lead, and good leaders pray. Men need to pray. Men should pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Stick a gun in my face, and what happens to my hands? They go straight up. I surrender. And this is the attitude that men should possess. Total surrender to the will and the direction of God. See, if men want to lead, they first need to bow to God. Verse 9 is a word to women. Now, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. I like this paraphrase. Women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. That puts it in the positive. See, real beauty is about virtue bubbling up on the inside of a woman, not adornments hanging on the outside. Yet, a Christian woman is responsible for how she dresses. The idea regarding jewelry and hairstyle here is to accentuate her inner beauty, not her outer appearance. I like the motto I once saw. It was a big deal between me and my daughter. I saw it on a t-shirt. Modest is hottest. And I tried to convince her of that. Rather than draw attention to your curves... Ladies, a Christian woman dresses to highlight her character. And then in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. That's a mouthful. Now from here through chapter 3, Paul is going to deal with the qualifications for church leaders. And eligibility for leadership falls under three categories. Character, giftedness, and gender. Sadly, today's church stresses giftedness. And yet the only giftedness that Paul mentions is apt to teach. It seems his priorities are on character and gender. And Paul says of women that they should learn in silence with all submission. This reminds me of the senior pastor, a little cartoon I saw. The senior pastor, he's assigning sermon topics to his assistant. He says, I'll take Easter. You teach on women in the church. Supposed to be funny. (laughs) Some pastors may try to avoid the topic, but to me, this is a litmus test. Is the church going to let culture or the scripture define its practices? And when you look at the whole of God's Word, His will becomes clear. Now first, let me say that I don't believe that this verse is advocating a strict, absolute silence of women in church. That a sister can never speak up in church. For there are other places in the New Testament where women participate verbally and vocally in the church. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, ladies pray and prophesy. Acts 21, verse 9, Philip has four virgin daughters who prophesy. 
In Titus 2, verse 4, the older women are encouraged to teach the younger women. Now, rather than a prohibition on Christian women speaking in church, I believe the silence spoken of here is the attitude that flows from a submissive spirit. Paul adds in verse 12, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Here the issue of silence is authority, and particularly the authority that comes with teaching God's Word. This all means that preaching in the public assembly is the job of men. And here's what a lot of ladies don't realize. If women want their men to lovingly lead in spiritual things, they have to show some restraint. Wives, if you are always asserting and doing the talking and taking over, your man is not going to fight you for leadership. He's just going to let you lead and he's going to go fishing. Men are taught early on never to fight with girls. If a woman is determined to lead, guess what? Her man is going to let him. Let her. Let him. Let him. Yeah, she's going to. You know what I mean. Here's the biblical mandate. In the church and in the home, the man is to lead. And hold final authority while the woman is to support and follow the man. In the eyes of God, men and women are equal in righteousness and in worth and in gifting. But they have different roles that they are to play in the church and in the home. Always remember, equal does not mean same. Some of the best Bible teachers that I've known are women. Kay Smith, my pastor's wife was a better Bible teacher than her husband Chuck. But men were not allowed in her class. They tried to attend, but Kay would run them off. For she understood the biblical roles. The word in verse 11 translated submission. It means to rank under. Everyone who has ever served in the military has met someone of a higher rank who had lesser skills and smarts than you did. But due to military order, what do you do? You submit. A bigger purpose is in play. And this is what God asks from the females in the Christian fellowship. Ladies, allow the men to lead. Not because men are better or braver or brainier. In fact, it's usually the opposite. Quite frankly, men are often inferior. Yet God has a bigger purpose in play. It's not as much logical as it is biblical. In the church and in the home, God wants men to lead and women to follow so the world can see a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. Men are called to assume the role of Jesus and lovingly lead. Ladies are commanded to act like the church and willingly follow God wants both sexes to complement each other, not compete with one another. And realize the arena that God has set aside for this role play is the home and the church. Not necessarily in business or in government. Women shouldn't be pastors. But the Bible has no issue with a woman president. 
or a CEO. It's specifically in the church and in the home that God is planning a redemptive picture through, na- through gender. So when a wife submits to her husband, or when a qualified female teacher yields to a male leader, it makes a radical statement. Folks perk up. They ask why. And it's our opportunity to share with them the gospel, the picture that God is painting through gender. Jim Elliott was a famous missionary to the Indians of the Amazon. In fact, Jim was martyred taking the gospel to the Akas. Following Jim's death, his wife Elizabeth was left in charge of those in their village who had been won to Christ. Without Jim, they needed a pastor. And the most qualified person to teach was none other than Elizabeth. But Elizabeth believed 1 Timothy chapter 2, that it granted authority in the church to the men, not the women. So she wanted to obey. So instead of teaching, Elizabeth gathered the men with leadership potential, and she helped them develop the weekly sermon. She explained, They would preach, not a very good sermon, I could have done better. But I felt it was not my job to take over the church simply because I was competent to do it. It was my job to encourage these men so that they would become competent. Here was a woman secure enough in her own skin to cooperate with God's higher purpose. And please don't buy into the liberal dribble that these God-given roles were only applicable to the oriental culture of the first century and don't apply to us today. Paul anticipates this argument in verses 13 and 14. The biblical roles of male and female transcend culture, for he traces them all the way back to Genesis, to creation, to the very first couple. This is not a cultural issue, this is a creation issue. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was formed first. And like the oriental title of firstborn, this carried with it privileges and authority and responsibility. God made Adam the head of the human race. The man received headship or firstborn status. And yet how quickly both the man and the woman violated their roles and bucked against God's will. Paul states, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Eve sinned when she usurped her husband's authority and began negotiating with the devil. Adam, on the other hand, was weak, and he failed to lead. And because of their mutual rebellion, sin entered our world, and all humanity has suffered since. And in the wake of Eve's disaster, Women are consoled by God with a promise of the coming Savior. Paul explains it in verse 15. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. A literal translation would be the childbearing. In other words, a single specific childbirth. And this is God's promise here. A woman got you into this mess. And a woman will help you get you out. Sin came into the world when Satan tempted Eve. But salvation, ultimately the Messiah, also entered the world through a woman, through a virgin named Mary. 
And it is through the childbearing, the miracle of Jesus' incarnation, that you and I can be saved. And what's expected of us is not just a one-time pledge of faith. Verse 15 exhorts us to continue in faith. We're to persevere in our faith and in the fruits of living out that faith in love and holiness with self-control. And there we have the first two chapters of Paul's letter to Timothy. Glad there was nothing controversial in the text this morning. (laughs) Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word to us today. Lord, I pray you give us all ears to hear. And Lord, you read a passage like this and you realize, Lord, how we fall, how far we've fallen. And how compromised we've become in our thinking. But Lord, your plan is good, it's wise, it's best. And Lord, we are people who love your word. We are people who are determined to get back to your word. Lord, we believe you've given us the Bible and it is profitable for correction and doctrine and rebuke and exhortation. We thank you for this book. We have found life in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to obey, to order our lives, Lord, around the precepts of your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us wisdom. Lord, even though it may be different from our own wisdom, Lord, we know that you Your ways are best. You are our creator. And no one knows better how the creation should work than the one who created it. And so we trust you. And we love you. And so I pray, Lord, that the men in our fellowship would become men of prayer. And would be humble men. And men who have bowed their knee to the authority of Jesus Christ. And who have taken up that authority in your church to be loving leaders. And Lord, I pray for the women of our church. Lord, we thank you for the capable and strong and wonderful women, Lord, of our church. And we pray for them, Lord. Give them wisdom. Lord, help them see their role in stepping back so that their man can step up. And Lord, I pray you'll give them grace. Lord, to support and to encourage and to follow. Lord, we want to be a church that brings glory and honor to you. We want to be a church that gets it right when it comes to gender. And so please work in our hearts this morning. We love you and we thank you for all these things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.